In the year 2000, Hollywood produced a movie called Pay It Forward. It's the story of a young man by the name of Trevor McKinney who takes upon himself the challenge of the assignment of his social studies teacher to create something that will help other people and then make it happen. And so he dreams up this idea of not paying a favor backwards, as we so oftentimes, you know, return the favor when somebody does something nice for us, but to pay it forward. And when somebody does something nice for you, you do something nice for three other people. In the movie, it changes not only Trevor, but it changes the attitude of the whole community. Now, long before Hollywood created such a screenplay, God was challenging His people with the very same concept. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25 read like this, One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then that classic from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule. It's like paying it forward. You do before it's done. You pay it forward and others will treat you similarly. Our word legacy, I think, sums up the concept nicely. When we pay it forward, we are creating a legacy for the future. And again, one of the stories that encourages me so much is a story that I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to some, uh, you know, until recently. And it comes out of the same period of Hebrew history that we've been studying together. And it comes when the tabernacle is built. Now, last week, I told you about Moses getting instructions from God about building the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and how the people gave so freely and gave so much that Moses finally had to say, no more. We've got more than enough to do the work. And so he restrained their giving. And, and so about 50 days later, they've got the tabernacle built and, and they're ready to dedicate it. And, and then this happens. Numbers chapter 7. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of the families who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, made offerings. They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and twelve oxen, an ox from each leader and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. So here come the leaders now, the governors, if you please, of these tribes with their gifts. And it appears that Moses is caught off guard, that he doesn't know what to do with these gifts, that he's surprised by them. Because the next verses tell us, the Lord said to Moses, accept these gifts from them, that they may be used in the work of the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites as each man's work requires. Now, this passage inspires me. These are some of the unsung heroes of Scripture. Their names are not familiar to us. Names like Nashon, Shalumiel, Eliasaph, Pagiel. But their actions suggest deep faith and great leadership in this monumental moment of Hebrew history. Now, if you happen to be a guest with us today, 
or you've, you've just started you know, a couple weeks ago. You, you need to understand that this is a monumental moment for us in this congregation. We are celebrating our 50th anniversary in this community, and we're about to, to come to the summit of our 50-year goals. And if you haven't read them, they are these. We, we've set a, a goal of praying more as a congregation. And in addition to our emphasis on prayer this week, I really hope that all of us in this room will take advantage of that 50 hours of prayer at the end of this week, starting on the 9th. It, please sign up at the kiosk or get online and sign up. We don't want to break in this chain of 50 solid hours of prayers we lead up to Commitment Day. And there's prayer calendars at the doors as you go out too. We, we also have made an emphasis on service. Yesterday, several hundred hours were given in community service via our CareFest Day as people fanned out across this community to do work together. And so keep on serving. But the third prong of this 50-year goal has been to give $5 million over the next three years to pay off our debt and then have this large sum of money to do something incredibly significant in the kingdom of God. And so next Sunday, next Sunday is the day that we as a congregation will make our pledges toward this God-given vision. I don't know what some of you are thinking. Oh, good then he'll stop talking about this all the time after next week. Well, I understand where you're coming from. I know some of you got the message early on. Just like Scott and Sophie a few minutes ago, they caught, caught the, the vision of this back last December, and all through this year they've been giving toward it. They, they've got it. They don't need to hear it anymore. And, and, I'll, and I'll freely, honestly tell you, I'm tired of talking about it, frankly. I am. I mean, I've been thinking about it, living this, praying this, dreaming this for a year. I feel like I've talked about it a lot, and, and I, I'm just getting a little weary of, of telling about it. But even though that probably describes a few of you in this room, we need to understand that not everybody hears it all the time. As a matter of fact, there's an expression that goes, say it six before it sticks which means you've got to hear something, you've got to say something at least six times before people actually begin to absorb what you're saying. Why do you think advertisers use the same commercials over and over and over again on television? Because it's not until we see them or hear them for a while that it begins to soak in. The other thing that is, is true is that we think if we've heard it, everybody else has heard it. When I started preaching years ago, uh, the national average of people's attendance was, uh, if, if you came three out of four Sundays, it was considered regular attendance. You know, everybody goes home to see grandma or you go on a vacation or something goes on. But three out of four times per month, that was considered regular attendance. Today, the national statistics would suggest that regular attendance in the minds of most people is somewhere less than 50% of the time, less than two times out of a month, which means that some people may be here one Sunday, and then they may miss three, and then they'll be here a Sunday or two, and then they may miss another two. That our, our lives, our chaotic schedules, that all the things that are going on on the weekends in our life has changed the pattern of how we hear. And so there are some people who may be hearing this only for the second time. And I think it's important that, that we make sure everybody knows so we're all on the same page together, because we're gonna talk about how important it is to pull together in just a few moments. So smile and hang in there with me. We're about done, but this is important. And then, and then I want you to think about this. Okay, we, we talk about, oh, I'm tired of hearing about that. But really, why should we be tired of hearing about it? This, this is an incredible year in our life. I got to tell you, I never get tired of talking about the theme of a great book that I've read. 
I don't care how many people I've talked to, they bring up that book and say, oh yeah, that was one of my favorite books. If we never get tired of talking about the theme of a great book, why, why would we get tired about the theme and the vision of the greatest church, the kingdom, the body of Christ? Why would we do that? And I got to tell you, I never get tired about talking about my favorite sports teams and their wins. And you can go over and over again, and you can see the replay of that great, that great shot or that great touchdown. And you think, oh, right, I never get tired of seeing that. Why, why do we seem to get tired of, of talking about the victories in the church? Shouldn't we be as excited about the kingdom as we are about our favorite sports team? And I'll tell you, I never worry about talking about my grandchildren. Or for that matter, I never tire of hearing someone else talk about my grandchildren. <laughs> and shouldn't we love the kingdom as much as we love our kids and our grandkids? Shouldn't we be as devoted? You see, there are some valuable truths that we can't afford to miss in this story. And, and part of it is the fact that we've got so much to celebrate. So let's look at the positive in all of this. Here, here's some valuable truths. Don't wait to be asked. These leaders acted upon their own initiative. Moses didn't call for another area-wide offering. There was no op-ed piece in the Wilderness Post calling for more money, nor did the issue even come up on the 6 o'clock news there at Mount Sinai. These 12 families simply recognized a great need and met it. Don't wait to be asked to make a difference in this world. Open your eyes. Be observant. You don't have to look very long to see an important need around you. You don't have to look very long to see negative circumstances into which you can breathe a positive influence. And so, do it. Don't say, well, nobody ever asked me to help. Well, you don't need to wait for somebody to ask you. Just see the need and act. God has made all of us ministers in his kingdom. Here's another thing. Work with others to get the job done. If you look at the gifts these leaders gave, it was obvious that they collaborated on the gift, that they didn't each just say, I think I'll give something. You, well, you decide what you want to give. No, they each gave an ox, and then they gave, the, between the two of them, a cart. That meant the Levites ended up with six wagons and six team of oxen. And that took co cooperation. It took collaboration. It took some planning and thinking because they wanted these gifts to be good. That cooperation made a great difference. When you work together, you can accomplish a lot more than when you work alone. You just talked to the folks yesterday who worked CareFest and asked them if they had a good time work, walking, working shoulder to shoulder with somebody from the church. And the more that were at the particular site that was being taken care of, the quicker the work went and the more that got accomplished and everybody was happy. It's always better when you pull together. And it's amazing how little can do great things when you pull it together. Now, last week, I asked you to do something. It was a step of faith. I understand. I asked all of you to put a dollar in as you left the, uh, the building and that we would do something unique with it this week, and then we'd tell you about it this week. And out of an attendance of almost 2,600, which counts kids and everybody, last week, $1,814 were in the, the boxes out there. That's really, that's really good. And this week, we did something with them. Just watch. Last Sunday, we collected $1,814, $1 at a time, after each worship service. That was enough to buy 194 coats for school children all over Bloomington, just as daily low temperatures have started to dip below freezing. The church staff coordinated with administrators from local schools 
to determine the number of kids needing coats at each school. After much sorting and packing, we began delivering coats to Highland Park, Arlington Heights, Fairview, and Templeton Elementary Schools with more deliveries scheduled for this week. We have a great need here at Arlington Heights Elementary. Our free and reduced population seems to grow every year. We are over 60% right now of free and reduced lunches. So we have a large population of families in poverty. This will help them a lot. It will help take uh, that burden away from them of having to supply winter coats for the winter. We really appreciate it. I am sure they will get used. Thanks. Well, at Templeton, for whatever reason this year, the need has been especially great. I can't explain why, but we have several. We've got 45 children um, who fit our definition of homeless this year. We have families living with seven, eight, nine, ten people in a hotel room. Um, these coats will go to help our neediest children. Yesterday, for example, we had a student outside on the playground in a tank top who didn't own a coat, um, and now I will be able to provide her with something warm to wear rather than an oversized sweatshirt. This time of year, a lot of our families call us. They call our social worker and the office and need support. They need coats and other items to keep them warm in the winter. And uh, Sherwood Oaks congregants came through. Um, we gathered the names of the students who needed help and who needed coats. They, we asked them to pay one dollar and then in return they got um, the coats that they needed for the winter. This helps our kids tremendously um, at the bus stop and at recess. It helps keep them safe and warm and we really appreciate the kindness from Sherwood Oaks. Thank you. That really encourages me. Um, and I, 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 cut, I got to tell you, I didn't miss my dollar at all. You know, I mean, you know, it, it seems like such an insignificant amount today. I, I just didn't miss that dollar bill. I didn't go without anything this week because of that dollar bill. I, I suspect all of you who gave a dollar bill haven't missed it either. And I couldn't have accomplished anything with that one dollar bill. But when we all put it together, look, nearly 200 coats were able to be purchased from a wholesaler in California, brand new coats that we were able to give to children who will be warmer than they would have if you hadn't put that dollar in. Now, what if everybody here would have thought, well, I don't need to participate. There'll be a plenty, plenty of other people that'll put a dollar in. What if every one of us had have felt that way and no dollars would have gone in? You see, sometimes I think we have this conclusion that if, if there's enough doing it, God won't notice me if I'm absent in the process, that God will be distracted by everything else. He won't notice that I'm not participating. It's kind of like the, the, the sign that appeared before this bowl of, of big, crisp apples, fall apples at the end of the elementary school cafeteria line. Kids are coming through, and one of the kitchen workers put this sign there in front of the apples that simply said, take only one apple. God is watching. Now, down at the opposite end of the food line was a big platter of chocolate chip cookies in front of which some sixth grade boy had pinned another sign that said, take all the cookies you want. God is watching the apples. And we operate off the mentality that God can't watch too many things all at once. And if we can get him distracted by a big group of things that's going on, you know, he's already got the universe he's keeping going. If we can distract him, he won't miss us from not participating. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God will miss you. The church will miss you because the more of us that miss out, 
the less we can accomplish. But when we all pull together, we all get to celebrate victory. I only gave a dollar last week in the boxes, but I'm celebrating that I helped buy coats for 200 kids, and you can too. here's, Here's another principle. Give gifts that make a difference. In addition to the wagons and the oxen, each of these leaders gave a silver bowl and a silver plate to be used in the worship of God. They also gave specific animals that were suitable for sacrifice at the tabernacle. In other words, there was not one thing among their gift mix that wasn't well thought out and carefully given to be used. Nothing was wasted with any of the gifts that they gave. That is so important. Have you ever received a gift that you know no thought had been put into it? I mean, you know, you open it up and you think, oh, come on. Nope. You didn't think about this gift. Uh, may- maybe you can tell it was re-gifted. Or-, or maybe it was the gift that you gave them last year and they re-gifted it back to you, not realizing that it was you that gave it to them last year. That can happen. All right. The most important question is, though, have you ever given a gift like that into which you put no thought, which is something you just wanted to get rid of, something that didn't really matter to you? One lady called the Butterball Turkey Hotline because she'd had a turkey frozen in her freezer for over two years, and she called to find out if it would still be good. And the folks at Butterball said, well, the meat will still be good. It won't be spoiled, but it won't taste very good after having been in the freezer for two and a half years. And she said, that's what I thought. I'll just give it to the church. (laughs) Sometimes people give like that. Sometimes we're simply guilty of giving God the leftovers. Whatever I don't want, whatever is easiest, whatever I can't use. But in Scripture, God always got the first fruits offering. Now, that, that was a term to describe the first of the harvest and the best of the harvest. And so a first fruits offering was when people gave the first and the best to God. This was an act of both love and trust. When you love God, you want to give Him the best. And the second thing is, it's a trust factor. When I give God the best, I'm going to trust His promise that He'll take care of me and that He'll provide for me. And so the first tithe of the harvest always went to God. And when you trust Him with your best, He will provide for you because that's His promise. And you simply cannot outgive God. In all of my grade school Christmas gift exchanges, only one year stands out, and it was because it was the year I did not get a book of lifesavers. Do you remember the book of lifesavers? Now, I know why, why we so often got books. Of, I mean, they were the right price range. They were easy to buy. And one size fits all. Who doesn't like a lifesaver, all right? But it got boring. Year after year, you got the same thing. Everybody got a book of lifesavers. One year, one of my classmates who had my name bought me a toy soldier. I've never forgotten that because there was thought and intention and time and effort put into finding that gift and buying that in the gift exchange. While everybody else was bemoaning their lifesavers, I was celebrating a really neat gift that as a kid I enjoyed. Addie, the other night after she'd been trick-or-treating, was emptying out her pumpkin bucket of all the goodies, and there were these bags of pretzels, and there was candy, and she got it all laid out on the table, showing us everything that she, and she was so excited about what she'd gotten. And then without prompting, she gave a, took a piece of candy and handed it to me. And she says, this is for you, doll. 
man, I was surprised and then overjoyed. I was surprised, first of all, because I didn't think of a two-and-a-half-year-old doing that on her own. And, and then I was overjoyed that I knew that she was beginning to understand how valuable giving could be. Now, the piece of candy she offered me was not one I liked. And, and Addie didn't know that I've got enough money that I could have gone to Kmart and got a blue light special on candy on sale, but a whole bag of the kind that I do like. But it had nothing to do with the candy. It had everything to do with her heart and her offer. When I bring my gifts to God, I know that I can't give God anything that he doesn't already have. I mean, in Psalm 5010, it says, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, I can't give anything that can top that. But it's not about the gift. If my gift comes from love and trust, it, God is surprised and joyful all at the same time because he's looking for the heart. And when he has our heart, that's the best gift that we can give him. Then the last thing I want you to remember is that our legacy is more important than our currency. Now, fast forward about 38 years from this offering here that the leaders give in the, in the uh, front of the tabernacle. The whole nation of Israel is now standing on the banks of the Jordan River, and they are ready to cross over into the land of promise. And the priests with the Ark of the Covenant carrying it on their poles, that, on their shoulders. And, and you've got to understand that at this time of the season, the, the, the Jordan River would have been at flood stage, and so it would have been roiling and, and rolling through there, a frightening scene. And it wasn't until the priest stepped into the river that suddenly, God miraculously, the waters began to roll back, and the, roll, and the waters that were going downstream flowed on downstream, and suddenly there is the Jordan River now with no water dry to cross. God did the same thing at the end of the journey that he did at the beginning. It's like bookends, the crossing of the Red Sea, now the crossing of the Jordan. He took them out of the land. He got them into the land. They were never to forget those two moments. And so when they crossed over this, this group of about two million people, when they crossed over into the new land, Moses said, all right, each one of you tribal leaders, he picked one man from every tribe, probably the new leaders, because the guys that had given these gifts early on in the story, they were long gone. But this is their, the, the next generation. This is their children and grandchildren. And he sent each one back and they took out a stone out of the center of the river and they brought it up and they built this monument up on the shore of, the, uh, of where they had crossed. And this is what we read in Joshua. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. In other words, leave these stones here so that when you're long gone, your children's children's children come along and they say, great-grandpa, what do these stones mean? And they will hear the story of when you crossed over and God parted the waters because don't ever let the generations of the future forget the grace of God. Legacy. That's what it's all about, legacy. It's helping future generations with what happens and matters most. I have a pocket knife that one of my grandpas carried, and I have a pocket watch that my other grandpa carried, and I treasure them as valuable family pieces, but that is not their legacy to me. How they lived is their legacy, their honesty, integrity, faithfulness, 
and love. Those are the qualities that made a true difference in my life as I watched it modeled out in them. I can still hear my grandpa's soft bass voice singing hymns as I stood next to him in church. I, I can hear his prayers at the communion table. I, I watched and listened and learned, and I have received a legacy that is wonderful. But what's even more important is leaving a wonderful legacy ourselves. Paul J. Meyer reminds us, he says, everyone leaves a legacy, whether you have children or not, and he's right. We all influence people that we encounter, so you have a legacy, just make sure it's a good one. Wanting to be remembered is important, but it's how one lives that a legacy is born. Serving God, loving your family, encouraging your friends, being loyal, helping a stranger. Those are the epitaphs that are far more valuable than anything carved on stone. But I do like this one epitaph carved on a tombstone. What I spent, I lost. What I saved... I left what I gave, I have. There was a man who understood legacy. I believe this 50th year should be remembered as a legacy year. This is the year that we decide our children, our youth, and young couples like Scott and Sophie and so many others are what matter most to us now. It's the future, not the past. And, and just think for a minute about what this church means to you. I can tell you, I am indebted to this church. This church has been a blessing in my family. Both of our girls were born here, raised in this church. They're still here. Their husbands are here. My grandchildren are growing up here. They love their teachers. They're learning. They're growing. I can't say thanks enough for the church being what the church needed to be for my family. And I'm convinced that every one of us in here has a similar story, that this church means something. Not just to us, but I want it to mean more to the generations yet to come. Now is the time to be unleashed from our debt. Why now? Well, no one knows the future. But I'll tell you this, unless our nation finds a way to stem the tide of our national debt, the future appears less than encouraging to me. I honestly believe the day will come when there will no longer be any tax deductions for charitable giving, which will affect all not-for-profit organizations around the country, but it'll, it'll make it harder. Now's the time to start a new future. Now's the time to be unleashed from this debt. I, I like the image that we have uh, on our, our, our material of this, this lovable little puppy who looks like he's been unleashed to run through the clover fields of springtime. But I got to tell you, that that puppy does not picture what I think debt looks like. When I think of being unleashed from debt, I, I get a different picture. I see this raging, growling, biting, slobbering kind of a dog. That's debt. And that's what I want us to be unleashed from. And none of us want to give up more than we have to. I get that. God doesn't say we have to give everything that we possess. We just have to keep it in priority. Norman and Melissa Cameron from Hartford, Connecticut, decided they wanted to be debt-free, so they just stopped paying on their mortgage. <laughs> they were contacted by the mortgage company, and, and, and they explained, well, they said, we want to be debt-free. We prayed to God, and God said it was okay that we didn't pay our mortgage. Now, that's irresponsible. I like the response of the mortgage officials. They said they would continue to foreclose until God contacted them and said they didn't have to. <laughs> 
It's one thing to want to be out of debt. It's another to make a commitment to do so. It's another to be irresponsible in our efforts to do so. It reminds me of the woman who wrote the IRS and said, please take me off your mailing list. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Wish it did, but it doesn't work that way. Imagine for a moment that it's near the end of the Civil War, and you are a northerner who has been living in the Deep South, You can read the handwriting on the wall. You know the North is going to win, and it won't be long, but you've been in the South for a long time, and all you have before you go back home to the North, all you have is in Confederate currency. And you know that at the time that the war is over, that Confederate currency is going to be worthless. So if you're smart, before the war ends, you'll trade your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, keeping only enough to survive until the war is over and you go home. As a Christian, one of these days, you will know that when you get ready to go home, earth's currency will be totally worthless to you. Doesn't it make sense to invest now in the future of the kingdom so that when you go home, you've used up wisely everything God has entrusted to us? You see, it's not about our currency. It's about our legacy. Last Sunday evening, the leadership of this church, uh, staff, elders, deacons, leaders in in other areas, met uh, for the evening to begin the process. Uh, the, The leadership made pledges to get started on this whole process, and the leadership pledged over the next three years $1,618,506 toward the unleashed goal. I didn't say that for you to applaud. I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to know that as the story in the Old Testament was true, the leaders of this church are trying to lead the way by example. Now, you add that 1.6 plus million to the 300,000 that's already been given through the congregation here, and then you add in $400,000 in our budget over the next three years toward a building payment. That puts us over $3 million already toward this goal, and so next week, Next week is when we as a whole congregation come together and say, this is our moment. And I'm praying for a legacy next week that is worth celebrating. Nicholas Winton was a stockbroker in Czechoslovakia back in 1938 when Hitler's Nazi troops invaded. He knew something evil was underfoot, and so he quit his job as a stockbroker, began to raised money from as many people as he knew. He chartered trains and found ways of getting Jewish children out of occupied Czechoslovakia and Poland any way that he could. And by the time all was said and done, Nicholas Winton had saved 699 Jewish children that most definitely would have gone to the prison camps and imminent death. He used his wealth not for himself, but for generations who he would never live to see. And you think, wow, that's great, 699. Oh, but that's not the end of the story. That's just the generation he saved. Today, today, that number is over 7,000. From that 699, he didn't live to see the 7,000. But he knew what was in the future was more important than what he had in the present. That's legacy. And while it's valuable to give somebody life in this world, it is far more valuable to give people 
that hope for all eternity, to introduce them to Jesus Christ who can give them a home in heaven forever. Now that's a legacy worth living and worth leaving.